The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Lawfare intern Christiana Wayne with an episode from the archives for August 8th, 2021. The Senate is moving forward with repeal of both the 1991 authorization for use of military force in the Gulf War and the 2002 authorization of the Iraq War. If passed, it would be the first successful repeal of an AUMF in 50 years. For today's episode from the archives, I've gone back to March 2019 for a discussion on war powers through the years. They talk about Charles Evans Hughes, the Whiskey Rebellion, Eisenhower's Taiwan policy, and other hidden gems of legal history. And they discuss what's missing from our usual war powers debates. So Matt, this is a podcast that I've wanted to do with you for a long time, and uh, but I think requires a little bit of explanation to uh, the listener because we're going to cover a lot of ground You've been working on a book, and in the course of writing this book and researching this book, you keep discovering these little gems of legal history uh, in national security law and war powers law uh, that you have been spinning off as this growing collection of lawfare posts. And so I think of this as this you know, pile of stuff that Matt kind of found when researching his book. So let's start by having you describe the book project. Well, like, what is the larger project that these these little gems of legal history keep bursting out of? Sure. Well, thanks for having me on to to talk about it. So I want to write a book about constitutional war powers, constitutional war powers from the Revolutionary War to cyber war. Um, and, and I want to do three things with it. First, I want to show uh, how constitutional war powers have adapted to some radical shifts in American defense strategy. Uh, that, you know, the text in the Constitution uh, has a lot to say about war and the military. Th- those provisions have never been formally amended over 200 plus years. Um, but their meaning has had to evolve to changes in military technology and American foreign policy as we've gone from a, a weak proto-state in the 18th century to a global superpower in the in the 20th and 21st. Um, and I want to tell that story. Uh, the, the second thing I want to do is, is show that constitutional war powers is about much more than the struggle between Congress and the president 
about who gets to decide whether we go to war or intervene militarily, about much more also than uh, this idea of an imperial presidency and the growth of the president's powers as commander in chief. Um, those are some of the big constitutional war powers questions, but others historically have included things like uh, the relationship between the national government and state governments with regard to American military power, uh, or the scope of Congress's legislative powers in wartime. So war powers, I think, has many, many dimensions to it. Uh, the third thing I want to do with the book is correct something, which is that most accounts of constitutional war powers naturally focus on wars. But I think some of the most interesting developments and in thinking about the, the Constitution and war occurred in between wars, in, in times of peace. You know, and, and in some respects, constitutional war powers work best uh, when they keep us out of wars, including by deterring our enemies or reassuring our allies. So we should be paying especially close attention to these periods of non-war. All right. So one of the really interesting points that you make in in is that we think of war powers as this struggle between the Congress and the president. But for a lot of American history, the actual war powers dispute was less a president, a, a, less a separation of powers dispute than a kind of scope of congressional power dispute. So to set up a bunch of the stuff that we're about to talk about, walk us through that a little bit. The imperial presidency discussion is a relatively recent one. There's this other discussion, which used to be what people meant when they said war powers. What is it? Yeah. And I think, I think that's exactly right. And where I've really dug into that question is in some work and writing I've done on, on Charles Evans Hughes in, in World War One. Now, Charles Evans Hughes, I think, is a remarkable figure in American history. He's governor of New York. He's an associate justice on the Supreme Court. He's very nearly president of the United States. He's the only person who ever stepped down from the Supreme Court to run for president. That's right. In 1916, he runs uh, as a Republican against incumbent Woodrow Wilson and loses by about 4,000 votes in California. At, th at that time, it took four days um, for the election to be called uh, for, uh, for, for Wilson. A very, very tight election. Uh, uh, then he goes then back into private practice where he's working at a ferocious pace, ends up uh, following the Republican takeover as Secretary of State, then as an international judge and arbitrator, and finally back on the Supreme Court, uh, this time as, as Chief Justice. Now, I'm interested in, there are so many interesting aspects of, of Charles Evans Hughes, and if Lin-Manuel Miranda wants to write a, a musical about him, I'd be delighted to, to collaborate on, on that project. He's got an but, amazing mustache, yeah, among other <laughs> Totally. Things. Great facial hair. But I'm, uh, I'm interested in what he said about war powers. And it's curious that he's this very influential figure in, in war powers discussions because he never actually really decides a war powers case. You know, he sits on the Supreme Court from 1910 to 1916 and leaves just a year before 
a declared war. Then he's on the court again from uh, uh, 1930 to 1941, again leaving the court just before we enter a, 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 a major declared war. So he's not on the court to decide major war powers questions. But in a 1917 address, this is six months or so after the United States declares war, de declares war in World War I, he gives an address to the American Bar Association's annual meeting called War Powers Under the Constitution, where he proclaims what's become uh, this very well-known, often repeated maxim that the power to wage war is the power to wage war successfully. Now, that maxim gets repeated all the time uh, up to the present day for all kinds of things, often as, as a justification for expansive presidential powers. But that's not what, what, what Hughes was talking about there. This was a speech about Congress's Article I powers in, in, in wartime. And, 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 and he was specifically weighing in on, on two big controversies. Uh, two big constitutional controversies of World War I. One, one of those was, can Congress enact a national draft? Uh, this was a big constitutional question historically in the United States. Um, and it wasn't a question so much about individual rights. It was a federalism question. The, 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 the objection or the major objection historically was that a national draft would completely neuter states' prerogatives to keep and maintain militias, state militias. I, I, and so there was a, a controversy that doesn't get resolved uh, clearly until World War I. Um, the other big debate that he's interested in is uh, uh, domestic regulation by Congress of the economy. Congress passes vast delegations of economic regulatory power to the president in order to engage in what many now call total war, the sort of mass mobilization of the entire society, the entire economy, in order to wage industrial-scale war uh, thousands of miles away. Uh, and so those are, those are the issues that Hughes is is saying the Constitution must allow because they are needed to wage war successfully. And he ends that speech with, I think, this nice poetic paragraph where he says, you know, the genius of, of, of our founders was that they created a, quote, fighting constitution, and, and our fighting constitution, uh, uh, quote, marches. I, by, by that, he meant this evolutionary approach to, to constitutional interpretation, that the basic features of constitutional war powers necessarily adapt as changes in military technology, changes in military strategy uh, develop over centuries. So one of the really interesting things about your piece about Charles Evans Hughes uh, is you have an image in it of the New York Times story of Charles Evans Hughes giving this speech to a bar the Bar Association. And I was thinking, like, if a former justice gave a speech to the ABA today about the scope of war powers, there is no New York Times story about it the next day. In fact, you know, maybe we would write something about it on Lawfare. Uh, and so my question is, why did the general press care what Charles Evans Hughes said about war powers? 
Yeah, so, you know, Hughes had special credibility on major constitutional issues and, and could speak about them authoritatively in that era. Uh, and as I mentioned, this is six months or so into American participation in World War One. He could speak to them in that era with an authority that I, I think couldn't be matched by any public figure today that would be accepted as as valid across the, the, the political spectrum. You know, this was carry, this was a speech that was, uh, as, as you say, you know, an, an ABA meeting speech that gets printed in its entirety by many newspapers across the country. The New York Times carries it on page one. Um, and so I think part of, uh, you know, the coverage, the attention it gets has to do with Charles Evans Hughes as a, as a, a uniquely authoritative figure. He also had this great image. Uh, it, later, Justice Jackson describes him as as looking like God and talking like God. And so, you know, I, I, I think he was somebody who the, the public um, and elite opinion really looked to for guidance on, uh, on, on constitutional questions uh, as American society was wrestling with huge issues, um, uh, especially huge issues related to building this massive government apparatus. All right. So let's zoom back 120 years from Charles Evans Hughes, or a little more than that, uh, and talk about the oldest piece uh, that you wrote, which is about the St. Clair disaster. Uh, so I had only ever run across the St. Clair disaster in uh, Philip Curland's book about uh, the Constitution after Watergate, in which he kind of cites it, as you do, as the incident that gives rise to congressional oversight. And I, I guess it shows up in the imperial presidency in that regard, too. But like, what was the St. Clair disaster and why do we care? Sure. Um, so I, I'm interested in going back and, and exploring George Washington and war powers. I mean, he's obviously this interesting figure in in that story as our commander in chief during the Revolutionary War, then our, our first president and constitutional commander in chief, because he had to wrestle with what what really does the Constitution mean? I mean, the constitutional text leaves open a lot of questions. Now, I want to relate that to something that Charles Evans Hughes said, because he says we, you know, the, our 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 constitutional founders created a, a fighting constitution. He makes it sound like they designed deliberately a, a sort of lean, mean fighting machine. But actually, I think the, the constitution was originally designed with to actually built built with some inefficiencies deliberately with regard to military power. And that's because many of the founding generation, many of the, 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 the architects of the Constitution worried about too much military power, about too much military efficiency. Uh, they worried that if you had too, too efficient a, a military machinery of government, that could lead very easily to domestic repression. They, they equated it with militancy and aggression abroad. So there are actually some inefficiencies built into the Constitution. And, and one of the things that makes George Washington a genius was not so much his battlefield 
sort of operational genius. He was a, a good battlefield commander, but he was not a, a genius on the battlefield. His genius was, I think, in mediating and handling a lot of competing pressures. And St. Clair's defeat is a, an example of this. So I think the Indian Wars, uh, Indian Wars on our, on our sort of territorial boundaries are a, 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 a somewhat overlooked episode in the Constitutional War powers story. You know, uh, this was an urgent need to secure our borders uh, when we uh, form uh, a new republic in in 1789. And in some ways, wars with Native American tribes were our, our first war. They were started even, I mean, these were hostilities that started even before the republic comes into being in 1789 and is in, they're inherited ongoing by the new republic. And some of the first acts of the first Congress uh, are to authorize troops uh, that are already engaged in, in skirmishes, fighting uh, uh, with Indian tribes along our, our, our borders. Now, in 1791, U.S. military efforts are led by General Arthur Sinclair, who was uh, the governor of what were called the Northwest Territories, but essentially a, a modern-day Ohio, where a lot of these skirmishes and, and wars were taking place. And he was not a a great battlefield commander. In fact, um, you know, to paint a bit of an image, he, he suffered gout and had to be carried by soldiers, you know, along the way in the in the wilderness. Um, and in November of 1791, uh, the the U.S. military faces its worst battlefield defeat, probably ever. In terms, in, in terms of numbers and proportion, it's a it's a complete and utter route. Uh, and there are a couple of uh, reasons why this is significant. One, you mentioned, this leads to the first congressional military inquest, congressional oversight, uh, an investigation of, of what went wrong. And the Washington administration submits to this. And, and, and can we just pause over that for a minute? It is non-obvious from the Constitution that Congress has the power to investigate things. That's right. This is an implied power, uh, and it's one that the Washington administration could therefore have resisted, but it submits. It, I mean, the Washington cabinet seems quite convinced by the argument that implicit in Congress's Article I powers are investigatory powers, even over military matters. And so this sets some important precedent right, right from the start. Another thing that's interesting about this story is the bulk of U.S. military forces at this time are state militia forces, and they're crummy. Uh, They're not well-trained. They have high desertion rates. Their morale is low. They are poorly integrated with the few hundred federal regulars that are uh, that are authorized by by Congress. And this is one of these original constitutional compromises. The original vision in the 18th century was that the bulk of manpower for waging wars was going to come not directly from the national government, but was going to come from state militias that were called into service. Uh, uh, and as a political matter, 
President Washington had to had to accept this reality. He knew from his experience in uh, the French and Indian War. He knew from the Revolutionary War uh, that state militia forces were never going to be very militarily effective. But there, there simply was not a, a sufficient political support to build a, a national military establishment of any size at this time. And, and so he's, in, in these early crises, like our border wars in the Northwest Territories. And another episode I write about the Whiskey Rebellion, he has to accept that, look, I, I, I have to work with state militia forces, even though they are, uh, they are going to very likely perform poorly, and they do. So let's talk about the Whiskey Rebellion. This is an episode for which uh, Washington is, I mean, it's something people learn about in grade school, right? You know, the Whiskey Rebellion. And some people confuse it with Shays' Rebellion. But, there, you know, this idea that there were, you know, disaffected uh, rural communities that were unhappy and that, uh, you know, had to be put in place uh, either by state or national forces. You know, we kind of uh, remember why is the Whiskey Rebellion interesting or important from a war powers history perspective? Yeah, well, so one reason why it's important is, once again, it, it shows the, the heavy reliance on state militia forces. Um, and when, when, when relying on state militia forces, Washington is constrained not just by their weak military capacity, but also the, the fact that as the, the political reality is that without the buy-in of state governors, it's going to be very, very difficult for President Washington as commander-in-chief to do much with these forces. So the Whiskey Rebellion comes in, in the early 1790s uh, after uh, Alexander Hamilton as Treasury Secretary says, well, one way to raise revenue is to, to place a, a tax on whiskey. Now, this comes as a great shock and, and horror to communities in, in, in areas like western Pennsylvania that rely on whiskey essentially as, as currency. So it, it takes a, a very, very big hit in those communities. These are also communities that don't feel a whole lot of attachment yet to, uh, to a, a, this, this burgeoning national government. They don't yet buy into very well uh, uh, the idea of a union. And so they, they rise up in, in rebellion. And over the course of several months, uh, President Washington develops a plan to send a, a force of about 13,000 men to go over the Allegheny Mountains and suppress this uprising. Now, to give some sense of scale, 13,000 men, that's a, I think that's larger than the force that Washington commanded in the decisive Battle of Yorktown at the end of the Revolutionary War. This is a sizable army that he's leading. And by the way, he leads it himself. I mean, this is, I think, the only time in history that a sitting president actually leads forces in battle. It's not just commander in chief kind of back, you know, whether in, in New York or ultimately at the White House. This is actually leading forces it's in the, the field. It's putting the commander in commander in Ab chief. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and so it's historically a very interesting and vivid moment for, for, for that reason. But 
you know, I think one of the things that's important about it is that, once again, it shows uh, just how significant it was that our constitutional architecture leaves states as the repositories of a lot of military manpower. Because in order for Washington to launch his campaign across the mountains to put down the rebellion, he needs to basically get two sign-offs. One is actually he needs judicial sign-off. And that's, I think, interesting today when we think about, you know, declarations of national emergencies and the role of courts in policing them. The, the Militia Act, under which he was operating, required that uh, a judge, a federal a, a justice, uh, a sign-off on the existence of the predicate conditions, namely that violent conditions had overwhelmed the federal justice system's ability to maintain order. Uh, but second, he needed some buy-in from state governors, especially the governor of Pennsylvania, in order to uh, uh, be able to rely on those militia forces to carry out their orders. So this gave state governments a bit of a, at least a sort of informal veto, a, a form a, a, or an opportunity for sort of at least bureaucratic resistance of the kind that we sometimes today associate in debates about the deep state and, and, and things like that. It's, it's, it's something that repeats uh, again and again early in our, in our history. Perhaps one of the most dramatic moments or most important moments comes in the War of 1812 that you've written about, where, where several uh, northern states that are not enthusiastic about the war basically say, hey, we're opting out uh, and, and nearly secede. But before that, they refuse to allow their militia forces to participate in the invasion of Canada. Military strategy has to adapt um, to meet the demands of state governments early in our history. So when does this change? I mean, I, as late as the Civil War parts of the Union Army are sort of donated by states, right? Uh, you, you have a lot of the regiments of the Civil War are organized by state, which is, I assume, a residue of this. But when, when is it that the National Army, in which governors of states really no longer have any say in the way the Union Army or the, or, or the, the federal forces are, are organized. So I'd say that it's a gradual change. I mean, one still sees heavy reliance on state militia forces uh, throughout the 19th century, including in the Spanish-American War, which comes in, in 1898. You know, you see, you see some kind of nationalization, some significant nationalization going on gradually, especially during the Civil War because of the, you're talking at that point about war at a much greater scale than ever before. But I would say that really it's World War I that locks in this this kind of monopoly of the national government. It's this, I, I think it's when we, when we reach this era of true total war. Um, and it brings us back to the story of, of Hughes and the, and national, the national draft. draft. And, and one thing to, to remember, I mean, state governments still play a role in administering that national draft. But one thing that's important to remember about the draft uh, and it, 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 the World War One draft is it's not just a it's not just a random 
selection of able-bodied men. Um, it's a selective service. Um, and by selective, what, what they're selecting for is not just able-bodied men able to, to fight, but also leaving back certain uh, workers who are engaged in war-critical industries. Because like my grandfather, not in World War One, uh, but my grandfather during World War Two is a chemist, uh, and they refused. He was not drafted because he was sent uh, to rural Pennsylvania to manufacture explosives, and uh, they did not draft explosives chemists. And and through the end of his life, which was relatively recent, uh, he would always describe the World War II, the great thing that separates him from all other men of his generation is the absence of service in World War II, that you know, this was a great gulf between him and his, his contemporaries. No, that's an incredible example. And it, I mean, it, it helps to paint a picture of, of just what a massive administrative undertaking the, the national draft or selective service in World War I was, um, because you very quickly, in a matter of months, have to bring into military service. I mean, we were a second, maybe third-rate military power at the front end of World War I. And, and a, a year later, we've got multi-million man armies that are deploying to Europe. And so in, and in between, we have to move large portions of the working population from civilian pursuits into the military and make sure that those civilian industries that are critical to supporting the army, an army that's being then deployed abroad thousands of miles away, those, that those uh, military uh, supporting industries are, are, are maintained. Um, and I think that results, it, it, it's, it's those requirements that result in a lot of investing the, the central national government with way more power over the economy, over individual affairs than ever would have been possible, let's say, a century earlier. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So one issue as you start projecting force overseas in a serious way in this massive kind of military commitment is 
and it's an issue we're still dealing with today, is when is it over? <laughs> That's right. I mean, we and uh, this idea of when does a war end um, or indefinite warfare is something that I think is often associated with the, you know, what used to be called the war on terror, the war against al-Qaeda and its offshoots, the, the 2001 AUMF, which has no sunset date and has been going on, you know, 17, 18 years now. World War I actually stands out as an example, though, of sort of earlier versions of this. Uh, you know, we, World War I for, for the United States has a clear starting point with a, a, a declaration of war by, by Congress. And we just recently celebrated what for many is the centennial ending of the war, which is Armistice Day, okay. November 11th, 1918. So, so let's 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 talk about this, because, like, you know, we celebrate Veterans Day every day, every year is the hour, the 11th hour, the 11th day. It's when the guns went silent. Right. It seems like on the surface, like World War One has a really discernible end point. And yet I, I thought your piece on this was stunning because uh, I had no idea there was this long legal debate about when World War I actually ended. Why was it not obvious? You have you have a an armistice, then there's a big famous treaty that, you know, it's one of those treaties that we all know the name of. Like most treaties, most people don't know like what treaty ended the War of 1812, right? But everybody knows the Treaty of Versailles ends World War One. Why is there a question about when World War I ended? Yeah, there's a question about it because the United States opts out of that war-ending treaty. Uh, you know, Wilson goes over to negotiate the Treaty of Versailles and the, and the League of Nations proposal, uh, but, uh, I, but can't sell it to the Senate back home. This is a real weakness, I think, of of, of Wilson. That he, I, I think he really misunderstands a lot of American politics when it comes to to foreign policy, or he just is so arrogant that he refuses to engage in it. But to your question about the end of World War One, I, I would say that November eleventh, what, what becomes Armistice Day, is kind of akin to what we might call today the end of ma major combat operations. That's when the guns fall silent, but is not as a matter of domestic law the end of the war, and not therefore the end of war powers, which end up being exercised by Congress, by the president, until 1921 into the next into the next administration. And this is something that that worries Hughes. Charles, to come back to Charles Evans Hughes, you know, he makes this speech that's all about ex the power, the expansive powers of government in wartime. The power to wage war is the power to wage war successfully. That's the maxim that comes from it. And, and he, he gives this speech in defense of very, very expansive wartime powers. But he solves that problem of how does the government obtain the powers necessary to wage war. But 
kind of creates a, a, a different problem with that maxim, which is, well, when do you switch back off those powers? And he becomes very anxious after 1918 that despite the fact that the, the war is in effect over, the United States is no longer engaged in combat operations for three more years, uh, the federal government continues to operate as though in, in many ways, as though the war is still going on, that it continues to operate under wartime statutes and, and, and do so in order to even engage in domestic legislation. A prohibition, alcohol prohibition, is enacted as, as a wartime measure after the armistice. And this, this causes great anxiety for Hughes because he's, he's concerned that having turned on this switch of war powers, if there isn't a good, clean way to turn it off, uh, it, the, the government may be very hesitant to give back the powers, that the added powers that it was vested with in order to, uh, specifically in order to win the war. So we're going to come back to the question of where, when war ends, but let's talk about what it takes to start a war because there's another, legally speaking, there's another, if you're worried about both the overseas commitment itself and the, the advent of a war, but also about the domestic consequences of war powers being invoked, one way to do it is to make it really, really hard to invoke war powers. And to me, the most, the, the most stunning of the little items that you have ginned up uh, or, or, or unearthed is this Ludlow Amendment, which I had never heard about until you told me about over breakfast some months ago, which is not quite in the same period as the when is World War I over debate, but it is uh, in the same interregnum period between World War I and World War II we almost pass a constitutional amendment to require a referendum before we go to war. So what was the Ludlow Amendment and how close did we actually come to passing it? Yeah. So, I mean, to understand the Ludlow Amendment, which is is proposed by uh, Congressman Ludlow in the 1930s and really reaches its height of popularity as a proposal in the in the late 1930s. So this is the America it, First period. Absolutely. Uh, keep, you know, uh, keep us out of Europe's wars. Don't look for monsters overseas to slay. Is that? that yeah, that, that 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 that's exactly right. I mean, as as you say, the the the, Lud, the proposed Ludlow Amendment would have required that unless the United States was attacked first, directly attacked, uh, uh, invaded, before Congress could declare war, there needed to be a national referendum approving. A, a, a declaration of war. So it would add a, a, an additional constitutional requirement before we go to war. And it, it, this would have uh, not, I mean, as you say, this is reflective of a certain isolationism, America firstism of that era. But it attempted to constitutionalize that as a, an American strategy. Say that's. It shouldn't just be American foreign policy to, to stay out of Europe's wars. It ought to basically be a, a constitutional requirement to do so. And, you know, I, 
What interests me so much about the Ludlow Amendment is that we normally think about Congress's power to declare war or Congress's control over war decisions as the sort of gold standard if, you're, if you want to make it hard to go to war. Because um, it's hard to get Congress to pass anything. And so if, you're, if you think the Constitution ought to be designed to be war-averse, placing war declaration powers or war-making powers in Congress's hands seems like a, a, a smart way to go, a smart design choice. And we, I think we, most of us normally think about World War I as kind of a textbook war declaration, right? Uh, the war had been going on in Europe for several years. Uh, uh, the United States slowly gets dragged into it. We have a big national debate about whether it's in our interest to try to remain neutral or to intervene on the side of the allies. Ultimately, after a number of events, President Wilson proposes to Congress that we declare war. Congress debates it and approves. That seems like textbook how the Constitution is supposed to work. For many members of the American public, this was a, a, a terrible way to, to, uh, to, to make a war decision. They saw uh, American participation in World War I as having been led by war profiteers, war industries that stood to make a lot of money, uh, or the financiers of war industries uh, who stood to make a lot of money by American participation. They thought it was too easy for Congress to declare war. So uh, Ludlow and others wanted to add an additional check on war making, uh, and that was this uh, that was this idea of a national referendum. Now, you know, it's hard to say how close did it ever get to passing because the Ludlow Amendment never actually makes it out of the House of Representatives, and you know, it, 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 constitutional amendments are hard. You need to pass by a supermajority out of both houses of Congress, and then get three fourths of uh, three quarters of states to to ratify these amendments. But in this critical period of 1937-1938, a whopping three-quarters of the American public say they, in, in polling, say they support the Ludlow Amendment. So it, it has great popular appeal. Ultimately, though, I, a couple years later, we are attacked in, in Pearl Harbor, uh, and, and at that point, FDR is trying to sort of slowly navigate the United States into World War I, and then our constitutional evolution takes a radically different turn, right? Instead of the Ludlow Amendment, which would have uh, made it much harder for the United States to go to war. From World War II, really after World War II onward, um, it becomes much easier constitutionally to take the, take the United States into war because that's when you have this real acceleration in the growth of the so-called imperial presidency, the growth, the expansion of unilateral presidential powers to use military force abroad. So, I, I mean, I think there's... It, it's almost almost more dramatic than that, right? Because in the in the Ludlow Amendment period, the the whole debate is over whether Congress has too much authority to take us to war. And then Pearl Harbor happens, and by the time of the Korean War, the the question of whether is whether Congress's authority is even necessary anymore, right? It's like you've, it's like this, 
we went from the debate being about whether you needed specific ratification from the public to whether the president can kind of do it on his own. I think that's I think that's entirely right. And it is interesting, you know, as, as I say that today, uh, uh, so, I mean, certainly the original vision of the Constitution, and I think in many minds today, you know, sort of putting congressional deliberation in charge of in charge of war decisions seems like a sort of a gold standard. Uh, but you go back to the 1930s and a vast majority of the public thought Congress can't be trusted with decisions about whether or not to go to war. All right. So uh, we have a very active debate in which you have you and I have both been participants about how to amend the uh, 2001 AUMF, whether it should be repealed and replaced with something else, whether it should be modified, revoked entirely. And you wrote a piece uh, last month about uh, an AUMF that was passed in 1955 uh, about the island of Taiwan. And listeners will recall that the United States has never actually fought a war over Taiwan. This AUMF puts our current debate over the, the, the 2001 AUMF in a remarkably different light than I think we, are norm, we normally think about it. So uh, give us a sense of what happened in 1955 and how different the debate was then than it is now over AUMF. Sure. So, uh, and let me say, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm really enjoying right now digging into uh, the A's UMF that were proposed and, and passed during the Eisenhower age, uh, the Eisenhower era. And I, I urge listeners to spend some time um, reading uh, some terrific new books about Eisenhower. I, I, I especially recommend one by uh, historian Will Hitchcock um, called The Age of, of Eisenhower. Eisenhower is, I think, an incredible and, and underrated um, commander-in-chief and, and the I, I'm enjoying it in part because he's sort of this anti-Trump uh, figure. You know, other than their mutual love of golf, um, they are they are complete opposites along almost any dimension. You know, Eisenhower is the hero of World War II. Trump uh, avoids uh, uh, participation in the Vietnam War. Uh, Eisenhower is totally self-effacing and, and selfless, whereas uh, uh, Trump is totally selfish and, uh, and and can't stop bragging about himself. I mean, they're they're completely opposite characters. Um, but for for our purposes here, uh, Eisenhower was also very thoughtful about constitutional war powers. And uh, uh, his approach to defense, uh, American defense, and this was an era in which the United States feels great vulnerability to a, a, a rapidly growing Soviet uh, nuclear arsenal. His approach uh, to defense included uh, strong alliances and an emphasis on wielding nuclear threats uh, as part of our defense strategy. Uh, and, and, and that meant that even small-scale conflicts could very quickly grow into big ones, probably nuclear ones. And, uh, and he believed uh, very strongly, I think, as a matter of principle, but also as a matter of strategy, having seen Truman's 
Korean War without congressional authorization sort of drag on and drag down the Truman presidency. Uh, Eisenhower believed very strongly that any major war, major war needed to be authorized by Congress. Uh, and so, he, he, and, and the approach he took was in certain regional crises. The one I wrote about was Taiwan or Formosa in 1955. And this plays out again in 1957 with regard to the Middle East. His approach was to go to Congress and say, I might need to use force. And by the way, that that, that force may include nuclear force um, in order to protect our, our, our allies, Taiwan, from Chinese communist aggression. And so I want you to pre-approve whatever force I think is necessary. And with virtually no debate at all, um, I think after about two days of, of consideration after Eisenhower proposes, of uh, a, a force authorization, Congress uh, passes one, and it says the president can use whatever force he thinks is necessary to protect Formosa, Taiwan, and use whatever force he thinks is necessary uh, uh, as he as he deems it uh, un until he thinks the the situation no longer uh, requires it. And this is uh, what we would today call an AUMF. It is quite a blank check in terms of the scope of possible military power. As I said, I mean, it was clearly contemplated that a crisis in, uh, in Taiwan. And it was a nuclear it was, it was, it was going to be a nuclear one. Uh, so it was a limitless in sort of quantum of force authorization. Um, and it had no time limit. And in fact, it sits on the books for a full 20 years until... Uh, until the early 1970s, and that's at a time at which the United States is realigning its relations with uh, with communist China and withdrawing from uh, its its defense alliance with 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 Taiwan. But for that, it may have it may have just sat on the books forever. Um, but we're talking, you know, if 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 you want to see what open ended. Uh, uh, a AUMF look like. Look at the ones in the Eisenhower in the Eisenhower administration. And and as I said, I'm I'm, I'm working now on a companion piece about the 1957 uh, AUMF uh, that Congress passes for uh, defense of the Middle East Middle East states against communist aggression, which is a, a similar story. So that's a really interesting raises a really interesting question, which is, are we fretting about the 2001 AUMF too much? I mean, is the right answer, you know, if you want the U.S. to be able to engage uh, and and threaten force, it is important that Congress pre-approve the threat. And so if you want the U.S. to send the signal, we will hit terrorists wherever they are, and we reserve the right to do that, having an open-ended, non-geographically limited, non-temporally limited AUMF, maybe it's a, maybe under the pre these precedents, it's actually a good idea. And people like me who've been, and you, who have been proposing various ways to rein it in, we're all missing the point, which is that the open-endedness is actually its virtue. 
Well, I wouldn't go so far as to say that the open-endedness is its virtue. Uh, I, I wouldn't they, either, okay, but I'm, yeah. I'm no, throwing no, it out exactly. on the table as a, no, as so, a discussion piece. Right. To, to provoke discussion, you know, I, 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 I don't look at the Eisenhower A's UMF as models of, of governance. Uh, uh, and by the way, you know, the, the Congress passes this first one, you know, essentially just giving giving Eisenhower the, the sort of blank check. It, it it's much more careful and 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 deba- debates for months the proposed even bigger blank check for the Middle East in in 1957, but ultimately essentially gives it to gives it to Eisenhower. And by the way, the the 1957 force resolution, which says the president can use whatever force he deems necessary to protect. Middle East states from communist aggression, that one is still on the books. That one is never repealed. So, you know, sort of one takeaway from this is that the idea that an AUMF would sit on the books indefinitely, that's, that's not a, a new idea. I mean, I think the, the, the bigger lesson from this and the, the bigger lesson for the current 2001 AUMF and this sprawling uh, war against Al Qaeda and its offshoots is that we need to look for things other than legislation, new new uh, new authorizations as our means of congressional check. Uh, and you and I, along with Jack Goldsmith and Bobby Chesney, put forward a few years ago some uh, some ideas for how the AUMF could be modified to give. A role to Congress in uh, in approving or disapproving of certain specific uses of the AOMF or expansions of it. Um, I still think that's a, a worthwhile approach to governing in this area. I mean, you we were criticized at that time as sort of authorizing a, 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 a forever war, um, and so the proposal was. Was, was sort of shot down by a lot of by a lot of critics. Well, we now have that forever war, and uh, we have it without any of the any of the governance restrictions that we would have created. That's right. That's right. And so I think we I think we do need to be looking much more creatively at what kinds of mechanisms can really promote genuine executive legislative joint deliberation about. Who we should be, who we should be uh, fighting, and where. So let's wrap up with uh, a, a sort of broad, broader reflection on what the lesson of this two hundred years plus of history is. I mean, if you take all these kind of forgotten gems or semi-forgotten gems of U.S. war powers history, what's the aggregate story that they tell together? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there are a few stories that I want to bring out as I as I tie them together. One one story is that is the one I, I began with, which is this idea that the the text of the Constitution with regard to war powers, powers over the military, uh, that text has remained unchanged over 200 plus years. Um, so we've had to work with the same textual provisions. 
as we've gone from a weak proto-state to a global superpower, as we've gone from having no standing army, close to no standing army, to a standing nuclear arsenal, as we've gone from a foreign policy that uh, that rejected so-called entangling alliances because of a fear that it would drag us into wars, to a foreign policy that's based on a whole web of global uh, defense pacts because we now think that entangling alliances are important to keeping us out of war. So as we've gone through these vast uh, uh, changes in American military power, American military strategy, we've had to work with the same text. And the text has had to adapt to these new realities. And overall, overall, I think it, it has done a pretty good job. So I want to tell the story, not just of, of that evolution, um, but also I think it's on balance a success story. You know, there are a lot of critics of the way in which in which war powers have adapted, so, most prominent critic being or criticism being that it 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 vests too much power in the commander in chief, the, the or the chief executive to engage in in in, in military adventurism abroad. We can debate. The, that particular criticism, but the Constitution has had to adapt to many other challenges. The 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 the, the onset of of total war, for for example, the change from uh, relative isolation in our own hemisphere, where we could rely on vast oceanic moats to provide a lot of our security, to now having global interests and global responsibilities with forces deployed around the world. And I think that's an important success story for our Constitution. All right. I want to channel Justice Scalia for a second in, in, in a final question, which is methodological in character. If the Constitution's war powers clauses mean that can mean that range of thing can adapt that fluidly to such dramatically changed circumstances they can permit the executive branch to have essentially no independent authority to use force in a serious way to they to everything from that to congress is really quite superfluous to the process uh do they mean anything at all? Is the reason that we're uh, praising their adaptability actually that they're quite meaningless and that what we really have is a British-style constitution by precedent? We just – we're Americans, so we formulate it in terms of the war powers clause, clauses. But really, there is no operative written constitution that governs war powers Sometimes war powers means the states have to donate all the troops. Sometimes it means you can have a national draft. Sometimes it means the president can go to war by himself. Sometimes it means you need a declaration of war. Really, it doesn't mean anything at all. Well, that would be, I, I think, one of the concerns is that uh, uh, the Constitution is, is, in a sense, too adaptive, right? It's, it's sort of anything goes if it can be justified as a, a war measure or as a security measure. And one of the things that I'll want to do in this project is talk about how 
constitutional law does, while, while, while it is evolutionary and adaptive, and for the most part, it has been permissive of these changes in American foreign policy, American grand strategy, it does still exert certain checks and constraints. And, and, and that'll be a part of the story that, 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 that I think is, is, is critical. Um, and sometimes, by the way, these adaptations lag, right? Um, it took a long time for the Constitution to be interpreted to allow a national draft. You know, you, you can get a national draft in, in 1917. Um, you wouldn't have been able to get a national draft in the War of 1812, and constitutional arguments were a, 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 big, a big part of that. I, I also want to just mention, because it's, it's, it, it was one of the points that Again, come to come back to Charles Evans Hughes, he makes in uh, in in his 1917 speech about war powers under the Constitution. You know, while while many provisions of our Constitution adapt, expand, flex in wartime, right? Rights, the constitutional rights vary depending on the level of threat or con Congress's powers expand to deal with uh, uh, wartime problems. There are certain features of the Constitution um, that are fixed and for which we'd countenance, I think, no flexibility at all. And, and I'll, I'll give just one example, which is we elect a new president every four years on a certain date. And I don't think anybody would seriously question that even if we were in the middle of a war, we still have a four-year presidential term. Now, this came up actually a bit in, in the Civil War in particular when, when Lincoln, it, Lincoln expects at, at, at one point pretty close to the, 19, to the 1864 election that he's going to lose to McClellan and lo not just lose to McClellan, but lose to a candidate who is basically going to end the war, negotiate a settlement and, and, and get, give up the, 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 the war aims. And Lincoln's view and his instructions to his cabinet is hey, if we go down in this election, our job is going to be to hand over power to a newly elected government. Um, and, you know, you can't, there are, there, there are some political theorists in the, in the 19th century who wrote about this feature of the Constitution, especially comparing it to the British system, you, and, and, and warned like, hey, this is a real problem, you guys, with the American Constitution, because you may elect somebody who seems like a good chief executive for peacetime, but what if you then find yourself in a war you might want somebody who's a much better wartime commander in chief. And under our British system, we could call snap elections and, you know, uh, uh, replace the government with a new prime minister. You're stuck with your president uh, uh, until the next election cycle. And so I think one, one of I think one of the really interesting stories about the American Constitution and war is not just which provisions of the Constitution evolve and adapt, but which ones don't. So, Matt, uh, how many more of these things are you going to dig up before you, you, you wrap up the book? Oh, well, that's a good question. Um, I, need to, <laughs> I need to take some time and actually start working on the book and truly tying these pieces together. I'm having a lot of 
fun um, spinning them out as individual uh, anecdotes uh, uh, episodes. So I'm planning to continue to do that. Um, but I, I, I've promised myself I'm going to shed some other responsibilities so that I can actually sit down and start cranking out chapters. Well, we hope as you develop more material, you'll come back and uh, add to this collection. Absolutely will do. Thanks. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Hey, I know I remind you this every time, but you guys got to get on and rate the Lawfare Podcast. Share us on Facebook and other social media. Tweet about us. Buy our merch at thelawfarestore.com. The Lawfare Podcast was recorded by Michaela Fogel. It is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. And of course, our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>